This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi. And Rebecca, we'll start with your interview. You got a an excellent doubleheader of two collaborators who I think we've been fascinated with for years now and have done maybe their most fascinating collaboration yet. We're talking about director Yorgos Lanthimos and the star of Poor Things, Emma Stone, who she might be the world's number one Yorgos Lanthimos fan, from what I understand. I'm assuming that came out in the conversation, too. Yeah, this is well, they have now done five projects together. I mean, wow. obviously, we know um, their work on The Favorite. They had a short film. They did another film in secret. They, they have a film coming up. Um, so we haven't seen all that work yet. But, you know, it's very clear that they have a really incredible working relationship because I think Emma gets to sort of do these insane performances that, uh, you know, really speak to her range. Yeah, I mean, for people who haven't seen Poor Things yet, I think it is really hard to describe. You saw it really early, and I remember you kind of trying to to tell us what <laughs> right. we were in for, and nothing really prepared it for us. But, you know, the the reason that people have been saying, like, wow, Emma Stone really could win a second Best Actress Oscar is because of the incredible and challenging performance that she gives in this movie. And, um, you know, w- what did you ask them about how this performance came together? Yeah, I think when you say, so there's a woman who has a baby's brain, <laughs> You're, you've lost some people already. But <laughs> and she think, has long, dark hair yeah. that looks kind of like a witch. Yeah, it's like, but that's what's amazing is you watch this performance and you totally sign on for it. You believe everything she's doing, even though um, this character is so wild. So we talked a lot about how interesting and unique this character is because she is sort of living in a world without shame, without sort of the barriers that other people grow up with and and makes her choices based on that. So, you know, we talked a lot about how the way Emma has to move her body, especially in the early part of the film where she the, the brain is still developing. It, it's just like there were so many choices these, these two had to make to get this exactly right or it could have gone very, very wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really want to hear them dig into how that all worked, because even if, after you're done watching Poor Things, you can't really figure out how they pulled it off. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's hear all about it. Let's hear your conversation with the Poor Things collaborators, Yorgos Lanthimos and Emma Stone. Yorgos and Emma, I feel 
so excited to talk to you about four things and especially to have you together because we're just um, a week out of the writer's strike resolution. And so uh, the actor's strike resolution. And it's so exciting that you're both able to join me for this. I'm, really I'm personally very excited yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, tell me what it was like, Yorgos, for you, you know, debuting the film at the festivals and not having Emma and your other actors be able to be there with you. Oh, it was horrible because, <laughs> you know, they were such big part of this and, you know, it took so long to make it and, yeah, they were an integral part and, you know, to not be able to celebrate together and, you know, bring the world, the film out into the world with them, it was, um, yeah, it was quite sad. Uh, trying to, we tried to keep in touch while everything was happening, you know, behind the scenes and, you know, everybody knew what was going on, but it was, yeah, it was it's just, you know, a little sad to have to speak about it without anyone else uh, there. But a lot of the crew was there, which I guess was one of the positive aspects of, of this situation, which, you know, they never get the chance to speak that much about the film. Uh, but yeah, I think that's enough of that. And now <laughs> the actress can join. I, I'm wondering when the two of you first started talking about this maybe being the next thing you'd work on together. We we started talking about this at, uh, near the end of filming The Favorite, or maybe just right after filming The Favorite. So in 2017, and he he sort of told me what the what the book was about, what the story was about, what he and Tony were working, you know, beginning to work on adapting and. Because uh, he had had the book for years before that, but that was that was uh, yeah right right at the end of the first time we we worked together. So Yorgos, you must have had Emma in mind while you know it sounds like you had the book for a while. But when did you realize you wanted to collaborate with Emma again on it? Well, I think while making the favorite, we had a very positive experience and. Uh, as soon as we finished, I think we had a first draft that we started writing with Tony while prepping the favorite, I think. Uh, so as soon as we finished the favorite, I mentioned it to Emma and, you know, this whole journey started that took quite a few years to to put the film together. But she was involved uh, ever since, I think, after she read the script and uh, we started you know, researching the the visuals of the film and uh, designing the world and bringing in other people, other collaborators. Emma was, you know, part of all of that. Well, Emma, what was your first impressions? Because this is an incredibly demanding role and asks a lot of a performer. What did you sort of think of it on paper when you read the script? I mean, we had talked about it so much before I even got the chance to read the script that I felt like I... I sort of understood her her journey or her arc, you know, from brand new to full adulthood. Um, but it was, I, I don't know, I, she's, she's my favorite character ever. Um, mm. I, like anyone would be lucky to, to get to play Bella, I think. And so I was just lucky that it was, that it was me. And um, I don't know. It it was it was such a long process. I think of of prepping for it. It was probably four years from from the beginning of talking about it to the time we actually got to film it. And um, so I felt like I kind of lived with her 
for a long time and and we still yours and I still talk about we miss her now (laughs) (laughs) um but in terms of you know the the physicality or the you know whatever might be difficult about Bella I always had him to you know as a gauge and a guide and so we very much were working in in tandem through all of that and so how do you prepare to play a character like Bella? I, you know, as you're mentioning, she starts out sort of brand new. It's a very unique situation to take on. Like, where did the two of you pull inspiration from? Was it about watching films or other performances or books? Or, like, where did inspiration come from? Yeah. No, I think she's, she's unlike, you know, any other character that I've ever seen. So it wasn't easy to, you know, find a reference. I think the only one of the few maybe uh references in terms of a film that i i came up with was uh Herzog's Kasper Hauser and and his performance mm. there but again it's not necessarily you know directly related but it was an inspirational kind of uh, performance uh that had some relation to it but i mean it was hard to find anything that's been done you know like that so it was just about finding what the challenges would be and understanding what we would be dealing with and then rehearsing and having certain conversations about um, her physical evolution, her uh, vocal evolution, the way her language uh, develops, uh, those kind of things. Uh, and, you know, making a map of how that uh, evolves across the script and separating the script in, in, in the stages of her development and so that she, Emma, would always have, you know, a good idea of, especially when we were not doing, because we were not doing every, the scenes in sequence, uh, if we would have to jump around, she would know, you know, exactly where Bella would be in terms of her um, progress. Yeah, it's in those early days of Bella's life, uh, you know, as someone who has a toddler, I recognize so much of the physicality of the the dropping of the dishes or the way she interacts with food. Uh, Emma, tell me about like, especially that early part of her life and capturing that. Uh, as someone who also has a child, I assume there's some inspiration from there, but how did you sort of manage that tightrope walk? Well, it was, you know, there's such a difference between playing, you know, a, a whether it's a real person or a character that's existed for a long time. And I mean, obviously Bella is in, is in the book for things. So has existed for a long time, but in a different way. Um, But I think a lot of, you know, any character that you play, like any person has a history to them and has, you know, things that have happened in their lives that shape who they are. And because she didn't have any of that, it was really freeing to kind of find or just play around and, kind of experiment with, you know, the way that someone of that kind of young mental age that she is in the very beginning, which we never ascribed an actual age to, there were never any numbers associated with where her, where her brain was at any given time. But it was really freeing to just come up with what would happen if you had that brain inside of an adult body, you wouldn't move in the same way, I don't think, or what, at least what we discussed, it wouldn't be, uh, I guess, babyish in the way that you would see like a 
normal toddler is developing as their bones are growing and everything because she's not going through any of that. Mm. So, I mean, the beginning was, we had about five stages that we would work through and that we would use as reference points in, you know, when we, when we were working on her walk or her, you know, the, the way her language develops, all of that. So the very beginning was really freeing, but also the, uh, the scariest part for me or the hardest part for me. Um, because the jumping off point sort of, you know, describes how the rest of this is going to go as she develops. And, uh, and we shot that first. So after that many years of, you know, thinking about things or trying things out to actually be doing it is, uh, you know, the first couple of days were really, were really challenging to sort of navigate and, and figure out how she was going to be progressing from that stage. But, um, yeah, but like he said, she's unlike anything else. So that was nice that there wasn't really anything to compare it to, you know. And obviously... Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Her sexual awakening and journey is such a big part of this journey that she goes on. You know, tell me how the two of you discussed capturing those scenes. She has like no shame and such freedom in those scenes. But obviously, as an an actor who grew up in the real world, I don't know how easy that is to turn on and off for a performance like this. Uh, You know, it, it was because she's so, because she's so free, because she lacks that shame about anything, about you know, eating, drinking, uh, the way she's taking in the world, her relationships to other people, her environment, sexuality fell in that same category. And and for me, it was a really freeing experience. Like you're saying, you know, having grown up as a as a woman in the world as we know it, and as an American woman also, um, it was a really freeing thing to think, you know, if I if I didn't have judgment around my body or around my sexuality or, you know, I, I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't need to shy away from, you know, and I that's one of that's one of the reasons why I love the way that this is shot and that the story is told because the camera is also not saying, oh, well, now we should look away because look, you know, this is we know in our society that this is something that shouldn't be seen. And so uh 
or we've been told that this is something that shouldn't be seen. Um, so it went hand in hand with, with the rest of it with her that, you know, none of this would be embarrassing to her or something that she would think was, you know, shameful in any way. And I think also, you know, the great gift of having both worked with, but also have a really, you know, close and very trusting relationship with, with not just Yorgos, but also Robbie Ryan, our cinematographer, and our first AD Haley, and our focus puller, Olga. It was a room that was, you know, anytime we were doing any of these scenes, it was only that group in the room. And so I felt so safe and contained with an amazing intimacy coordinator uh, named Elle. And she she really, like the the whole environment just felt very fine. Like I felt completely in a, in a safe space. And I was always, you know, such a, I had so much agency within it that the crazy thing was actually seeing it afterwards, you know, because <laughs> like being in the room was just felt like completely natural. And I was like, oh, right. It's in a, it's in a movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, that was my kind of relationship to it. And Yorgos, um, I really love Mark Ruffalo's character in this movie. I think it's also a tightrope walk to get that character right. Um, at one point, Gerard Carmichael's character calls him a pretty moron. But how would you <laughs> sort of describe that balance between beauty and dumbness and harmlessness and danger <laughs> that that character has to sort of have? I don't think you can describe it. You can only experience it by <laughs> watching it. Like it's... <laughs> Again, it's almost unlike anything. Like he, uh, you know, Mark was great. I mean, we had so much fun during rehearsals. We had we laughed so much with him, you know, just uh, trying all these things out. And you know, he he yeah, he just um, came in and didn't hold back. Also, had no shame about what he was doing, and it was <laughs> um, yeah, it was so. Uh, exciting to watch. So um, I think I, we, we weren't prepared for it. None of us was. And then, you know, it just um, it just clicked with everyone else. And we had all this time of rehearsals that, you know, all the actors got to know each other and uh, develop this bond and kind of one performance kind of clicked with the other and you know this ensemble was created that you know um each each character kind of supports each other tonally and uh, i think you know that's a that's an outcome of that and that's how it can it can strike the balance because balance is a tricky thing when you're talking about like you know, something that you've created or you or you made you know it, it cannot be the same for for everyone like different people have so many different experiences and cultural backgrounds social backgrounds and tastes you know like it's you can't cater for everyone you can't strike a balance that's balanced for everyone so it had to be how we felt and how the group felt and, you know, how how it felt true compared to the material in relation to the material. And that's what we did. Like, we just had to go by our measure of uh, what looks right. And, 
you know, you mentioned you had rehearsals. I think it was about three weeks. Is that right? Of rehearsal time? Yeah, it was three weeks. But, you know, there's other things going on at the same time. A lot of, you know, fittings for all these costumes and a lot of dialect preparation. Coaching. Dialect coaching. <laughs> so there's, there was a lot going on. But we did have quite a few uh, days for rehearsals. Emma, is there anything you sort of discovered in rehearsals that was surprising to you that sort of informed uh, how you played the character? I think, well, we worked, we worked a lot on physicality, Yorgos and I, mm. like independently of the group rehearsals uh, throughout that part of the process, because we had been apart, you know, talking about things, but apart for, for a long time, because he lives in, you know, Athens and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, so we, we worked on that. But, but other than that, you know, the rehearsal process is so much fun, because it really is just getting to know all the other actors in such an intimate and silly way that by the end of that, and we had the same thing on the favorite, we had three weeks on the favorite to, to kind of have that. And I remember by the time we started shooting the favorite, it was, we all felt so close and, and, you know, could make fun of each other and feel like we could embarrass ourselves in front of each other. And it, it was the same on this, the same was true. So I think that's the most important part of the rehearsal process that we tend to do is just this, you know, that I can walk in, you know, walk onto set to be with Willem and we already have inside jokes and can mess around with each other and just feel, you know, not this sort of tension of needing to get it right, but, you know, more freedom to experiment and kind of play around. I think that's the environment that Yorgos likes to create. Yeah. And the two of you must have a pretty easy shorthand after having worked together so many times. Uh, but what what's it like when you disagree? Was there ever a, a moment where you weren't <laughs> eye to eye on something? <laughs> Your ghost? Yeah, we, yeah, I mean, of course. You know, we we have a little fight. Yeah. And then, you know, then we make up and it's all good to go. <laughs> it's the best, though, because... I mean, that's how you know you really, you really love and trust and respect someone is that we we can absolutely fight, um, which I think is so important because when you're kind of tiptoeing around a person or you know feel like you're on eggshells or like you can't say what you need or uh, you know and for and for both of us or what you're thinking, we I mean we, I think we have like a very kind of jokey banter and we like to have fun, but we're also like able to stand strong in what our opinions are on things and meet either in the middle or persuade each other to the other one's side. <laughs> yeah. um, and then it's over and we can move on. And it's a really, it's a, it's a really um, important and, and powerful thing, at least to me uh, as an actor. And that's why we've made four things together and hopefully more. Um, can you tell me what the two of you learned from each other working on this one? Something you took away uh, that you learned from each other, specifically on poor things? Um, I learned to trust inexperienced people, <laughs> which is indirect of saying, we actually started developing a film uh after each day of of filming uh we i i took pictures on set and we developed together the the film that we shot mm -hmm. and um after emma work had every never day done, we had a lab. after work every day <laughs> and emma had never had never done that before and uh i trusted her with it 
which is, you know, the, the negative can be destroyed if something goes wrong. <laughs> and uh, the same way I trust her about every other thing, I trusted her with this. And uh, it was, a, yeah, it was a fulfilling experience. It was really, that. that's when I knew I was like, he really, really trusts me because his photography <laughs> is, is precious. And he, you know, was taking these beautiful pictures on a, on a Chamonix, like a, a large format camera. Um, you know, I was learning, he was teaching me how to, you know, load in a tent in the dark. And then we were developing and we have so many pictures from, from set. Um, but I actually, that was like a, you know, when you do trust falls or whatever with, <laughs> with people, <laughs> that was our trust fall. And then I would load your cameras too. I would load. So I was kind of, you know, both acting and producing, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and a camera assistant, which was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, that that was yeah. I learned how to develop with you, Yorgo. <laughs> both, you know, emotionally and literally. <laughs> Emma, you you mentioned this as a sort of a side, but you're a PGA Mark producer on this, which is means you're a real hands-on producer on this film, which I think is really incredible. What did you find was sort of like the aspect of producing that you really grasped onto, that you really felt like you wanted to, you know, go in deep with? Well, I'll speak only to to this particular uh, experience, but I, you know, Yorgos asked, he asked me to be a producer, uh, I think like a year and a half before we made it, but it just felt, again, like this experience was so in tandem with him and that we were you know, discussing all the other aspects of the film already. And so really, it, it just sort of felt like a cool addition to a title rather than like a, you know, I was doing anything different really on this one. And, you know, Ed Guiney and Andrew Lowe are like real, like producer producers. Uh, that is their full-time job. And here I felt like, you know, Bella's, producer or something yeah. <laughs> Yorgos. and like a like a you know developer so to speak mm. with Yorgos. well so you spoke about poor things while you were doing the favorite so are there already conversations of what about what you we've already made one in the meantime we made two short. well yeah. we shot short. one short film yep. before poor things but we we shot another one in new orleans uh last fall and I don't know, Yorga. Are there any other conversations? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we we after we finish one, we discuss the next one. So we've shot yeah. this this feature film in New Orleans last year, which we're now editing, uh, and you know, poor things is coming out now. So we're doing this part, and uh, yeah, we're we're discussing about you know doing something together again. So now you're going to hear the conversation that I had with Emily Blunt about her role in Oppenheimer. I'm kind of fascinated by the Oppenheimer team being back on the road since they were famously cut short in their promotional duties, hustled off the London premiere red carpet as the strike began back in July. Um, and she's really been out there doing a bunch of Q&A. She was talking about how, you know, a Q&A where Robert Downey Jr. is present is a real highlight. Um, and it was fun talking about this movie, but also just the career that she's had. Like, I think if you're an awards follower, there have been many times where she's done incredible incredible work that, you know, a lot of times we feel like doesn't get the recognition that she deserves. And now she's in Oppenheimer, which I think is really 
the biggest movie of her career or most people's careers. And what was really interesting for me is when I asked her, like, how she braces herself for the impact for how something she does is being received. And it seemed like something she hadn't really wrapped her head around, even after this much time in the industry. Um, Rebecca, I'm assuming you're someone who, like me, has been kind of like rooting for her to really get in that spotlight. And um, this time it feels like it might have really happened. Yeah, I think she's so talented and also sort of quiet in her talent. You know, she delivers like solid performance after solid performance. And yeah, I I agree. I don't think she's quite gotten the awards attention she deserves. I'm so glad this movie gives her that moment. And I'm curious if you guys talked about that specific scene that really lets her shine and deliver. Yeah. And it was interesting because I asked her before that about you talking about being quiet, about all the scenes where um, Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer is testifying in that closed room and she's just sitting behind him. Like she's Mm. just in the background. She's not talking for scene after scene. And I asked her about what it was like doing that and staying present in the moment. And she was saying they basically filmed all those scenes in order. So by the time she did that big testifying scene on his behalf, she had been watching him getting berated by Jason Clark day after day. And she like felt the anger bubbling up on behalf of her co-star, even though she said as Jason Clark is lovely in real life, of <laughs> course. Um, but I love that that was how they did it. You know, something as big as Oppenheimer filming in exact chronological order isn't possible. But I think you feel the impact in those um, interrogation scenes and how it builds up to her really big showstopper moment. Yeah, I think in this movie that is so much about men, it's it's really nice to see her shine. And, and I can't wait to hear it, Katie. Yeah, well, let's hear it. Let's hear my conversation with Oppenheimer star Emily Blunt. So, Emily, we were just talking about how um, the screening circuit, the Q&As for this time of year for Oppenheimer's kept you guys really, really busy. Um, I mean, you've done this before. You've been through this period of kind of promoting a movie in the awards season, but you guys didn't have the chance to do this for months and months and months. Does it feel as busy as it looks from the outside? I mean... It sort of like comes in, it's like sort of ebbs and flows. It can be like feast or famine. It's like, mm. you know, I just sat uh, at home making banana bread for a week. And then before that week, I was with the Oppenheimer dudes and we were doing a lot of this kind of thing. But we really love each other. We really like being together. And it's and we're talking about a film that we're so awestruck and proud of. So that helps, right? Yeah. When you were saying before that when Robert Downey Jr. there is a is there it's a particular treat. Um, can oh you God, tell me we more love about it. that? Killian and I just love it because <laughs> Killian's so shy and we just love it when Robert comes in because he's so kinetic and he's so bonkers that um, <laughs> he has the most amazing way of never asking answering a question directly but somehow (laughs) you're given like an even more juicy answer he's wonderful we're we're all madly in love with him we really are yeah, I was watching a Q&A you guys did earlier, and it kind of seemed like of the group you like you knew him or you had a connection with him, like you were the the translator from him not answering the questions obliquely. Is that from knowing each other previously, or is there just a connection that comes from um, from going through the Oppenheimer experience? Maybe going through the Oppenheimer experience. I mean, he's very easy to get to know. Like he's he's so fun and open and curious, and I don't know if I know him better than any of the other dudes in the cast, but I. I don't know. I think he's, and I didn't really have any scenes with him in the movie. Yeah. I remember, I remember it was his first day and we'd been working, you know, for about a while on it. And he was coming in late to start his stuff. And I went into the trailer and he was having his head sort of shaved backwards, yeah. you know, and 
dyed white and <laughs> you know I said, oh God, Robert, you're going to love it so much. I said, he just, Chris is incredible, really tightens the screws on you. And I said, but get ready for some very British compliments because that's what you will get. <laughs> there will be no smoke being blown up your ass. So, uh, what's, he, a, what's a British compliment? What's an example of that? Good. Yeah. Happy. Okay. Oh. Moving on. That's it. <laughs> But you're like ready. You're like, okay, great. This is my native tongue. This is my this is my native tongue. I mean, Chris even looks like my uncle. So this is all very familiar territory to me. So <laughs> it was fine. Um, so when I read American Prometheus earlier this year, and when I really locked into the book was when it got into Kitty's backstory and her entire life before she met Oppenheimer. And I also was like, oh, well, that'll never be in the movie. There's no way that there's time for that. And I'm wondering if when you get the script, you locked it in, in the same way I did reading the book, being like, I cannot believe they made time for this and that it works in this giant movie. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what, you know, Chris Nolan is so brilliant at, is that he is able to showcase at such a velocity every nuance of this story and every every person who had an impact on his life. And I think hers was quite a startling force in his life. And so, yeah, that first scene that we have on the hilltops with the horses and she's yeah. rattling off her whole life history. When I read it, for me on the page, yes, you get an idea, a window into her. But I also thought that scene was like a seduction. You know, it's really mm -hmm. just her at great pace trying to seduce him by how interesting and wild she is, you know? Yeah. Um, at, at least that was what I thought would be fun to do for the scene. Yeah. I mean, do you remember how you prepare for a scene like that? Because it is sort of a monologue. It's a lot of information. <laughs> and it feels very clear when it's played out. But I wonder what goes through your head to make it play out as clearly as it does. I think it was that there were so many kind of juicy little snippets about her that I'd read about in American Prometheus as well. So it's sort of a window into the velocity at which she sort of came into his life and turned everything upside down. And they were like two comets coming together. So I had an intention with those early scenes of making that connection really as potent as possible. So you mm -hmm. understand why he would leave the warm, loving arms of Jean Tatlock for someone as sort of sharp edged as she was. But I think they were like intellectual stimuli for each other. And, and even though she had sort of managed to sort of <laughs> work her way through a bunch of husbands by the time she was 29, yeah. he was her one and only really. Yeah. And however tempestuous and I'm sure volatile and ugly their marriage probably was, fueled by too many martinis and a lot of cigarettes, I think it was a successful marriage ultimately. I really never got over the detail in the book about how they would have dinner parties but never serve food. It would just no, there was be a bunch never of food. <laughs> it was just so much alcohol. That's why, I mean, and that's why the Oppenheimers were so emaciated. You know, it's just that they just never ate, and I think survived on on Coca Cola and martinis and cigarettes. And so, yeah, you probably should. It's probably a go to go get a burger on the way to the Oppenheimers. Um, that that, that <laughs> yeah, would I think be it's literally what they did. Yes. I was also bummed that the, uh, the uh, Katie's life after he died doesn't make it in the movie for obvious reasons, but like uh, sailing around the world on a yacht, I mean, no, they didn't make it, but like what a whole oh. like fifth act that she had. I mean, truly, I think she, and that's sadly where she, where she died. And yeah. um, I think that restlessness in her probably spoke to always needing 
something new, something stimulating. And of course, there's no question why she'd want to go kind of traveling around the world. That sounds very much like her. Yeah. And there must have been so much dissatisfaction, you know, for her at her own lot in life, even though yeah. she helped to build him into this monumental person in history. She'd sort of deteriorated in the process. Yeah. I mean, it's so familiar in some ways to like if you're in a modern marriage and both of you work where like you're sacrificing for each other right you're like it's your turn it's your turn and then for that version of the story there was no her turn but did it help you relate on that level knowing that you know you've been married to someone who's working that you you do have to sacrifice for each other at some point you do but it was such a different time back then and the expectancy on women to no matter what their intellectual ambitions they had to kind of contort themselves into some into a you know 1940s 1950s housewife ideal and a lot of women just weren't built for it so there must have been so much festering frustration um for the women with those great brains that that were meant to be more than just someone's mummy or someone's wife and it's wonderful when that's enough for for you and it's also okay when it's not you know yeah yeah it just is and i think that time period it was just not allowed it yeah. was it was very rare. And she was still, even though she did end up driving herself insane at the ironing board, you know, in the isolation of Los Alamos, she, she was a huge and powerful supporter of his, mm-hmm. an important confidant for him, but, um, t- but to her own detriment, really. Yeah. To go into another really specific scene, there's a lot of scenes of Killian and the kind of the testimony and you sitting in the background. Yeah really actively part of the scene, but not speaking. And I think that kind of playing active participation in silence is really hard. And it's hard for us to kind of understand what you're doing. So I'm curious if you could talk about what what you did in those specific scenes and how you prepared for that. I mean, I think it's a really, um, we actually shot all of those scenes at the end of Mm. the shoot. So it was quite emotional in many ways doing those scenes because we'd had the entire shadow of what we just shot Mm -hmm. um, to draw from. We all knew each other terribly well. And I remember every actor coming in, it was usually their last day. So it was quite emotional. It was amazing. It was amazing. And it it was a very claustrophobic, very shabby little room. And that's how Chris wanted it. And Oppenheimer was, he was raked across the coals in an unceremonious environment and that's what that's what it felt like. It was a horrible, claustrophobic, sweaty set. And <laughs> um, so it was just in, for me being able just to watch. And again, most of the time I could only see the back of Killian's head or like his yeah. ear. But I could see all of those men just tormenting him, really. And I think Killian's wonderful poise and yet vulnerability in playing the character during those testifying scenes, it did just, I realized for her, it must have been just, she must have been simmering with rage and frustration that no one was coming in, no one was taking their part or their accountability in their part in creating the atomic bomb. No one was vouching for him. No one was fighting. So I guess by the time I got to do my testifying scene, I'd watched everyone come through and just bully him, really. So you really had kind of lived it in in its own way by the time you got to speak. Yeah, completely. And I'd seen, and Jason Clark was 
the most delicious bully ever. Like he was so great and such a great dance partner for everyone in every scene. So it was it was fun for her to finally come in and sort of rip the face off him because he'd been so <laughs> it just he'd eviscerated so many people and he'd eviscerated Killian's character for so long. Yeah. Yeah, I usually like I find him really likable even when he's playing kind of a bad guy and he's so yeah, he's despicable great. in this movie. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, he's he's vile in this movie <laughs> and and he's he's so good. So yeah. good. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you were talking earlier about very English compliments, and I'm I'm curious about Nolan as a director, for particularly for people like you, Robert Downey Jr., Killian, Matt yeah. Damon, like people who we, you know, we know you guys are experienced. We know that you are in charge of your craft as an actor. But I'm, what, what difference does it make to work with a director like Nolan specifically for your performance and for what you feel like you can accomplish on his set? I mean, honestly, it's the the most beautiful part about the way he directs is the environment he creates for you just has no chaos at all, mm. none. And I can't imagine, I mean, I'm sure he was holding a storm in his brain every day, but you felt none of it. He's so understated. He speaks to you privately and intimately. His notes are really transforming. And he never comes in before three takes. I think it's like he understands actors. He knows you've got to throw a bunch of stuff against the wall hmm. to see what sticks. I think a lot of actors do self-correct within a few takes. You can tell when you've played a doozy. You can tell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's just lets you mine around for a bit. And then he'll just come in in the quietest way. And he'll just go, you know, have you thought about this? And have you thought about, you know, maybe we could play it like this, you know. Mm. And it's just very private and very collaborative. And I think the unusual part of him I guess we all forget because he's such an extraordinary filmmaker, but he's an extraordinary writer as well. And that almost gets like overlooked by him as a director. He's the most brilliant writer. But I think what's unusual about him is he doesn't straightjacket you, you know, with some presupposed idea of how he thought the scene would be when he mm, wrote it. Mm -hmm. He's really curious and interested in your take on it. Yeah. Because this movie runs like a ticking clock and there's no there's no piece out of place, but it doesn't feel like making it felt that way, that there was space and time to, you know, do something different. Well, I can't believe the movie was shot in 57 days. I, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think there was an element of it that felt like a runaway train. I think in setting the scenes up and moving locations, okay, we shot this for half a day and now we're over here. 
I think that stuff moved like the wind. But then once you were on set, it was never that you felt you couldn't get another take or that you, there wasn't room or space for you to find it. And I think that's how he can become this big sort of quiet conductor of it all and just get rid of all the noise for you so you can have space, really. He's, he's amazing. Do you think the way that you look for that kind of support from a director or confidence on set has changed over the course of your career? Do you feel like you know better if, it, if you've taken a bad take uh, at, quicker than you used to? Like, how has that changed for you in your time as an actor? I mean, I think I definitely want space and curiosity from the director. But I will take a spirited opinion over a foggy one. Mm. I like people with a very clear vision for their movie, but with flexibility for the performances. Mm-hmm. So it's it's quite a tightrope walk, but be open, be curious. We're all trying to find it too. And I think that's how actors maintain confidence. If you're coming in and micromanaging, people freeze up. Mm-hmm. E- even people who have been around the block for a really long time, If you come in and you meddle and you micromanage and you control, people freeze up. That's got to be such a weird thing to witness, like not to name names. Just being being in the presence of something that's going off the rails, being like, oh, wow, anybody can freeze up under the wrong circumstances. Anyone can freeze up. And it's, it's delicate. The process is delicate on the day. You just need space. You need openness. You need curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about you and Killian um, getting ready to release A Quiet Place Part 2 five days before the world shuts down or something oh like God, that. Like, I don't know if you were standing on a red carpet and <laughs> everything crashed. I but think I'm, we were. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was curious about reuniting a whole pandemic later on this set and how much you guys had changed or if there still was enough of a connection or some combination of the two. You had both, you know, everyone had gone through a lot in between those times. I, I just adore him so deeply as a person, certainly as an actor. He's one of my favorite people in the world, not just my favorite scene partner. Um, I think jumping into this complicated marriage was it was so helpful to have a shared history and a shorthand Mm. and a sort of secret language that we knew we trusted each other we knew we liked working together we could have fun between takes there was levity which for a film as intense as this one it was so actually for both of them you know quite really intense as well I think Killian and I need to do a nice kind of quiet (laughs) a nice kind of comedy somewhere and just see (laughs) see how that goes there's an immediacy, I guess, with our friendship that lent itself to trying to present a lifelong marriage. Yeah. I was thinking about your work on the Quiet Place films, and then also you were an executive producer on Pain Hustlers. And I'm curious if that has given you a, a different curiosity about different parts of filmmaking you want to do or level of interest or, you know, getting involved in different ways. I mean, a film like Oppenheimer is kind of asking something different of you. But is there sure. kind of a goal for another phase there somewhere? I mean, that's sort of what's happening now. Uh, I, the first time I produced something was with this show I did called The English. Mm-hmm. And it was a six-part limited series. And it was just my baby. I just absolutely loved it. And Hugo Blake, the director, brought me on to produce it with him after the, the pilot. I think I read the first page of the pilot and I was like, I'm in. I'm obsessed with this writer. Yeah. 
And so that was my first foray into it. And I just recognized that the journey was so rewarding. It was so completing. And I've been doing this a while and I love the acting. I'm in love with it. But I'm really interested in the full spectrum of the story and mm-hmm. what it takes to make something great, not just good, but great. And I love the pre-production. I love the editing. I love the music. I love the sound design. And I think I learned a lot, you know, being married to John, it was his first foray into really directing something that massive with Quiet Place, even though the first movie was made for $17 million and shot it in six weeks. I mean, it was just crazy that I don't think he expected it to become what it was. But you know, I see what goes into sweating bullets over every nuance and every detail when you're trying to take a big swing with something and you're trying to carve out new space for yourself with a project. I'm interested in that. And if you do want to take a risk, you do kind of have to be a part of it from its embryonic stages. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely in the future, I want to do it more I don't know if it was appropriate on this one, you know. Hey, Chris, sure. can I produce it? <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably a lot of uh, people already involved in that one. Yeah, exactly. So you saw your husband sweating bullets over something and you say, I want to do that. I want to put myself through that <laughs> ringer. Well, I don't want to direct. Like, I see <laughs> that, like, from the moment your eyes close to the moment you open them, it's all you think about. Yeah. And including in the middle of the night, I would wake up and just see the light of his phone as he wrote ideas. And, yeah. you know, it just you don't, you don't shut it off. But I think, I don't know if I'm ready to direct something, but maybe one day. Yeah. But I would, but I'm enjoying the producing hugely. Yeah. I mean, the way that the industry has changed since you first got into it, I mean, it, it, Hollywood changes all the time. It's not like it's been some unusual period, but right. it does feel like we're in less of a place where even like the Devil Wears Prada would be given space than it was then. But I think A Quiet Place and Oppenheimer are both evidence of saying like, don't overthink this, just make good movies. I I just wonder about your perspective on it, if it feels like it's becoming a more forbidding environment or if being part of these films has made you feel as hopeful as you ever were. I I always, I am a hopeful person. I would say I try to walk into every day with some sense of hope. And I feel like these films come along once in a while and they appear to be so rare because they sort of get unleashed on the world and people go wild for them like Oppenheimer and yet I don't want them to be an anomaly Mm -hmm. I hope that we create more movies like this clearly what people are wanting is to be provoked and challenged and to experience something and not be spoon-fed and not see movies that are derivative of one another and I think that's sometimes a trait in Hollywood that if something works, you'll try and repeat it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everyone wants to be the second person to say yes or it's great. Like, who has the conviction to say it first, right? Mm-hmm. My hope is that we keep having very daring filmmakers and studios and homes for these filmmakers to thrive and don't straightjacket them. And they've been hired for their taste, they've been hired for their vision don't have so many cooks in the kitchen, things get muddy, things get, I've seen it. I've been a part of those where too many voices can blur the vision and it gets lost somehow. And, and someone like Chris Nolan, you know, he just has such an authoritative way about him and he has such clout in our industry that everyone just gets out of his way and look what happens. Yeah. 
Does that feel like some insurance when you step onto a Nolan set where you're like, well, I know the studio's not going to come in and yell about this oh, because he I can mean, get away with yeah, what he wants just, to do. You just know that you're going to be you're going to be okay in a yeah. Chris Nolan movie because you know that it's a singular, brilliant vision. Yeah, and you and you know everyone on set believes it. Everybody, and I so there's such confidence around that, and so I guess I just want to see more and more of that. But I am hopeful. I am hopeful. It all happens in sort of ebbs and flows. The yeah. the strange thing of like people's jaws on the floor about a three hour historical drama um, being seen by that many people. Yeah, but it's thrilling nonetheless. It's thrilling because it's an experience, and I think that's what he's able to offer people as an experience. Well, I assume that you spent the Oppenheimer opening weekend with Barbie going in at the same time, kind of the same way I do. Being like, oh my god, I can't like my wildest dreams are coming true. Like for both <laughs> movies, I know you're in one of them, but just like yeah. that, people cared about movies that much. It was like it was so thrilling. It was so thrilling, and it and it did feel rare and that it also didn't have to be sort of gladiatorial, like pitting them against each other. Just go see both. Go I see know. both. Hey, it's not a competition. They're wildly different movies. Please go see both. And it felt so celebratory and wonderful in that way. We were we were really thrilled. Have you guys been running into the Barbie team, like on this yeah. know, circuit of Q&A? Because I know Killian and Margot yeah. did Actors on Actors, but like I'm just yes. I'm just hoping you're just crashing into each other backstage and high-fiving. Well, you know, I worked with with Ryan Gosling. Oh, right on the Fall Guy, right? Yeah, so we did Fall Guy together, and again, it was before the whole thing with Barbie and Oppenheimer happened. Yeah. We just knew we were both in two different movies. We didn't realize <laughs> they were going to become sort of <laughs> phenomenon. Know, yeah, um, and I flew on a plane with Greta recently, who's wonderful. I've met her a few times. I think everyone just thinks it's wild and fun. Yeah, and it's like still fun. I mean, maybe we're all still just like, fun. we'd like go of it eventually, but not yet. Um, no, no, it's so much fun. I know, like Oppenheimer obviously just blew past so many expectations in general, but I wonder how you set, set up expectations for yourself overall when you've made something, you put your heart into it, you're putting it out into the hands of the world. How do you brace yourself just, just personally, like accepting that it can go either way and, and that has to be okay? I do feel sometimes I'm bracing for impact. No, no one's ever asked me that, actually. Oh, wow. Truly. I don't know anyone's asked me that. I do feel that. It's a bit of a white knuckler mm -hmm. leading up to it with most films. I think I felt people would love Oppenheimer just by the reaction from the people I knew who'd already seen it, and they mm. were left so distraught and so excited by it. But I do, f I get really nervous, Yeah. Because yeah, see, that's that's the thing that I I have to assume that there's nerves yeah, there. No matter what, I get really nervous. I I think that it would be great if you could just stand by the the sort of chest beating declaration of it's just about the work and everything. And I and I feel I absolutely adore the work, but of course you want people to love your movie. Yeah, and Do you, you want people to see it. You know. Do you know anyone who does do that, who just is like, the work is the work and I'm done and, and they can walk away from it? Clean? I think some people, but I think most actors care. <laughs> you know, hope so. Most actors care if people love their movie because we've all worked so hard on it. Yeah. Well, and then you get some films like The Edge of Tomorrow where like it just takes time. It's like a boulder rolling down yeah, hill and then you get like the delayed response that people love it. And I guess that's another kind of thrill. 
Well, I think if you believe in your movie, there will always be some films take on a sort of culty following after it. Like, yeah. I mean, even Sicario didn't mm -hmm. it it did well, but not like crazy. And yeah. that's the movie. It, it will be Sicario and Edge of Tomorrow will be those ones that people talk to me about all the time. Yeah, all the time. Well, and that's the like thing that sometimes it feels like the industry loses track of. It's like opening weekend and that's it. It's like, but there's a, it's a long game. Movies live forever. There's so much time. And I think that's what, that's my hope is that we stop kind of making the opening weekend so the make or break of a film. Um, yeah. Because the audience response is so important as well. And that does take time and the ripple effects can be slower on. And sometimes it's like quick fire and sometimes it's yeah. not. I think a great movie will always find find eyes on it, you know. That does it for today's show. We will be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on social media at VF Awards Insider. You can find me at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.